0: the research on the science of learning tell us about teaching in the classroom? How can assessment help us to learn? What measures of engagement are evidence of learning? Which countries are preparing teachers to use the science of learning? These are some of the questions we will address in this episode of Learner Engagement Activated, the podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learner engagement for students at all age levels and environments. This podcast hosts leaders in the field to bring you advice for how to increase learner engagement to improve student outcomes. I'm your host, Ian Fensi, and in this episode, I speak with legendary cognitive scientist Paul Kirshner about strategies for improving cognitive engagement in the classroom. Ready, set, activate! Paul Kirshner is Professor Emeritus at the Open University of the Netherlands, Honorary Doctor at the University of Ulu, Finland guest professor at Thomas More University of Applied Sciences in Flanders, Belgium, and owns his own educational consultancy company, Kirschner ED. Paul Kirschner is an internationally recognized expert in his field. He is the past president of the International Society for the Learning Sciences and research fellow at both the American Educational Research Association and the Netherland Institute for Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences and Humanities. He has published several successful books, including Top Steps to Complex Learning, urban myths about learning and education, evidence-informed learning design, how learning happens, and how teaching happens. I am delighted to welcome Paul Kirshner to our podcast. Paul Kirshner, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's quite right. It's my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: So let's dig in with one of your most recent books, um, How Learning Happens, Seminal Works in Educational Psychology and What They Mean in Practice. So for those who haven't read it yet, you select some foundational articles on the science of learning, and you provide an explanation of why the article's important with a brief description. And then you dig into like, how does that actually apply in the classroom? And I'm curious, like there's so much great research out there about how learning happens and you know what's going on inside the minds of our students. How did you decide which studies to include in the book?
1: Well, there was, um, a, 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 the first was, um, uh, who were the giants upon whose shoulders mm. I stood mm-hmm. and who made a dent in my life. You have to realize I'm um, uh, an educational psychologist, a cognitive psychologist by trade. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I'm talking about how learning happens, I'm talking about what's going on in their heads. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 sensory memory, short-term memory, long-term memory. And what we can do to affect their cognitive architecture so that was let's say the first part the second was um i crowdsourced um i made use of uh, twitter to twitter okay. those who were following me what they, which, which articles they thought were seminal articles mm. uh, based upon those two things i then went and dived deeply into the articles and looked how many of them are actually seminal that we can say that they were based what, what what they did with the basis of what a lot of other people did after them. That's kind of like the definition of seminal article, is that it's it's the beginning, it's the seed yeah. of further research, further development on that. And uh, then along with Carl Carl Hendrik, we weeded out those things that didn't fit into either the category of um, good empirical research. You know, we didn't want philosophical articles. Mm-hmm. didn't want articles that were um, you know, uh, just giving uh, people's thoughts and ideas in it. And also things that deal with how things happen in our head. And so we came out with, uh, I think it was 29 articles uh, in that. And based upon things like the sections are how do our how does our brain work, what are the prerequisites for learning, mm-hmm. which learning activities support learning, um, how the teacher can interplay with what's happening in our cognitive architecture in our heads, mm-hmm. um, learning within a context, contextualized learning, and finally some cautionary um, uh, tales like. Um, uh, 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 learning pyramids, learning styles, mm. um, what um, uh, Dick um, calls, yeah, how can I say it Dick Clark, Richard Clark, calls mathematicantic activities, activities that kill learning. Yeah, uh, Ernie Rothkoff had the term mathemogenic activities, mm-hmm. those activities which give birth to learning, and a number of years after that. Uh, uh, Richard Clark, Dick Clark, uh, wrote an article on those things which kill learning, mathematic, And, and um, the, me- the the medium is not the message, that it's not about the technology, but about the pedagogy, the teaching. And finally, my favorite one the 10 deadly sins of education.
0: <laughs> so, and some some neuromyths in there too and some learning. Some
1: neuromyths things. are in there also. Yeah. I mean, if you look at things like uh, learning styles, that's a classic neuromyth or that we can uh, multitask, things like that. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote two other books with uh, colleagues here in the Netherlands, uh, Kasper Hulshoff and the lead author was Pedro de Bruiker. He's in America at this moment, right at this moment. And he'll be this weekend at Research Ed in Maryland um, on urban Myths, urban legends, and more urban legends in which we go through all between air quotations uh, myths that we could find mm-hmm. about 70 80 myths of oh, which wow. 15 20 15 to 20 are uh, neuromyths.
0: Yeah, and so what, what ones did you find that were really prevalent? Um, that uh, learning like, periods
1: multitasking learning periods pyramids, multitasking, learning styles, um, those types of, um, those myths are very prevalent and they kill learning.
0: Mm. Well, but how, how do you talk to people who have been, you know, like educators who in their own education program, when they were certified, they learned about learning styles? Like, how do you help them to let go of those kinds of beliefs?
1: um that's very very hard if i could put it in one or two sentences you could probably either uh, ask the nobel committee to give me a prize (laughs) or you can ask the pope to um, nominate me for sainthood Um, uh, what i try to do is i try to make it through examples but primarily analogies which Mm -hmm. they can really understand themselves and they can relate to themselves Mm. um to show them the absurdity of what they're thinking. It's kind of like, OK, we have a kinesthetic learner. How are you going to teach them how Bach sounds or how a, uh, a painting by Vincent van Gogh looks like? Yeah. Uh, who, are you, who are you closing out uh, if you do it in, in that way? Uh, with also with respect to things like multitasking. They've learned that they can do it. But I say to them, uh, have you ever been in a meeting And you're checking your telephone and the person who was chairing the meeting asks you something and then you have to kind of like find a way to say, I wasn't listening, I was doing (laughs) something else. And you say things like, could you please rephrase it? And it wasn't that you were deaf and you didn't hear it, but your brain was trying to process information that was on your telephone that you were reading. Yeah. And so it couldn't process the information that you were hearing. And all of a sudden they look at me as if, you know, like there's an epiphany and it's kind of like, oh, and then they come with, yeah, but my student this. And I say often, then I get a little bit annoying. That's where my (laughs) grumpy old man side comes. And I say, do you have another anecdote? And if you do, we can call it that. (laughs) And then even all research, all empirical research shows that learning styles don't exist. (laughs) I can give you a whole one-hour uh presentation on the data behind that and shows that it doesn't work
0: mm. so what's so, what's the danger though of holding on to these beliefs
1: you well you will um you give parents and students well it depends upon which belief mm-hmm. i mean if we talk about the uh, the belief of uh, multitasking mm-hmm. or let's take a different one the learning pyramid which yeah. says you'll only remember 5% of the things I tell you and 10% of the things that you read up to 70 or 80 or 90%, depending on who thought up the newest learning pyramid. Uh, The idea is you'll think that um, uh, only learning by doing is the way to learn or by telling it to another. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, if that's the case, who taught it to you? How did you learn it? it? It kind of tells you that there's only one good way of teaching. Mm. all of the other ways are bad but yeah sometimes telling people something is the most effective efficient and enjoyable way of 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 getting access to new information Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes uh, reading it or sometimes seeing it in action in a video but it depends upon quite a lot of different things so if you if you make use of that what you're doing is you're limiting your possibilities for uh, the tools that you can use, the pedagogical techniques that you can uh, apply if you have this blind idea that only by doing it yourself is the way to learn it. And usually doing it yourself is the worst way to learn it (laughs) because you're learning, you you don't know what you know and what you don't know. So doing it yourself, learning by discovery has been shown to be one of the worst ways of learning. It leads to the least learning, it's the least efficient. Mm. And when somebody finally discovers a possible answer, doesn't have any idea how she or he got there and starts the next problem again with trial and error, Mm. what we call, uh, what I would call, uh, a weak means-ends problem-solving approach.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people who have discovered things, they didn't do it on their own. They, you know, were were working with other people.
1: Well, usually the people who discovered things were experts. Yeah. That's yeah. the epistemology of the expert. That's not the pedagogy of the learner. Yeah. I mean, uh, 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 Vincent van Gogh, as you would call him, Vincent van Gogh, as I would call him, with his impressionist style, began... Mm-hmm. By painting houses and still lifes,
0: mm.
1: yeah he became an accomplished painter and then he branched out mm. um, uh, if you look at uh, all of these people who who came up with these epiphanies mind-shattering things they did it from a, a position of knowledge yeah of expertise and they discovered new things you don't get I, i've never heard of a 12 year old with a nice idea who got a Nobel
0: Prize.
1: <laughs> it's usually a very accomplished scientist.
0: Yes. That yep. Got
1: a Nobel Prize in medicine or physics or chemistry. Yep. And they discovered new things based upon what they already know. Mm. What you know determines the rest. Being creative is being creative and, and, and doing something that's worth worthwhile. And you do that if you have knowledge to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because experts and novices approach content differently. And we can't differently. Treat students like little little experts because they're not yet.
1: They're not. That's one of the chapters in how learning happens. And mm-hmm. that's that a learner is not a little expert. A novice is not a little expert. Not only they have less knowledge, but they also, their schemas in their heads are different. They see the world differently. The way I see the world as uh, an experienced cognitive psychologist mm-hmm. is quite different than a first-year cognitive psychology student. Mm. When I see something, I have all of these schemas in my head that I can place it in and, and make, make 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 judgments, uh, evaluate it, um, uh, draw conclusions. And a novice, a learner, doesn't have that. Derek Hudson wrote in the 70s or 80s of of last uh, century that Scientists do science. Students learn science. Mm. It's quite a difference. Yeah, I wrote a chapter and 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 in a book and an article um, that the basically that the epistemology of the expert is not the pedagogy of the learner.
0: Mm. Yeah, and <clears throat> so I was really excited to hear that you have this new book now that's about how teaching happens. So yep. now it's not just what's going on inside the mind of the learner, but what can teachers do that are effective in the classroom? So what's, okay. it did, what's in, that, in that book?
1: Oh, uh, uh, quite a lot. I, I'll, I'll open it and go through it um, uh, shortly. It's a um, first, uh, uh, first section. Uh, as with how learning happens, this is in sections. Mm-hmm. Yeah? It always, every chapter begins with a, a little intro, uh, followed by the uh, abstract of the article or synopsis of the book chapter if it's if it's the book chapter then it goes into what the research said and did
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, followed by what does this mean to you in the classroom how can then the next is how can you apply it
0: mm. Yeah. and
1: what are the takeaways and finally lots of extra materials blogs videos um uh, in interviews and things like that. So you have the basic source material and you have all of these additional things. Mm-hmm. Now the first section is on teacher effectiveness, development and growth, things like um, difference between an experienced teacher and an expert teacher based upon David Berliner and, and teacher expertise, or those who understand our teachers by Lee Shulman, his work on knowledge growth and teachers, followed by curriculum development and instructional design. Um, the section three is on teaching techniques.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Section four is on pedagogical content knowledge. So in generally, in a number of different areas like mathematics, the sciences, um, uh, reading and English, mm-hmm. native language, followed by technological pedagogical content knowledge, TPAC, followed by in the classroom, the teacher in the classroom, maintaining order and um, teacher authenticity and finally assessment different types and 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 how you can best work with assessment and different forms of assessment Mm. so that's from the teacher's side of the coin and that contains also um, teacher effectiveness studies so not primarily or not only cognitive or 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 educational psychology but this is also teacher effectiveness studies
0: Hmm. Well, wow, I can't wait to read that. I'm really excited about the to look at the assess assessment section because, like so often we we think of assessment as like a burden on a teacher or something that is wasting the student's time because we're teaching to a test. and that's that's not how we learn. We actually no. learn better when we assess,
1: yeah, definitely. And we learn different things. There are different types of assessment and different levels of assessment. You can make use of assessment. Um, uh, uh, in a formative way to see how things are going you can do it in a summative way but you can also make use of assessment as a learning strategy mm. which i call no stakes test assessment mm-hmm. um, others call it like cart picking and rudiger call it um a retrieval practice yeah those types of things so you can make use of it in in, in completely different ways so we discuss things like the many faces and uses of assessment when testing kills learning but when it doesn't um, don't ask questions that don't require understanding from Richard Anderson. Um, why teaching to the test sometimes isn't so bad from Daniel <laughs> Corrance.
0: Yep.
1: And um, what teachers don't learn in school. Uh, mm-hmm. So assessing teacher training.
0: We mm-hmm. also look at that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So now, this podcast, we often talk about aspects of learner engagement and um, so uh, I unfortunately think that a lot of times people equate behavioral or observable um, indicators of engagement, they, they equate that with actual learning, which, which can be problematic because there, there might not actually be any learning going on. So what recommendations do you have for educators who want to increase and they actually want to measure cognitive or affective engagement in their learners?
1: Um, well, the first thing um, uh, I, I would say, and you're completely right, uh, professor robert coe um in 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 England um, uh, once wrote, um well, he gave us an ordinal address and it's an inaugural address. I would suggest everybody go look at it and li- if possible listen to it. Okay. he gave a number of poor proxies for learning. Hmm. And one is that they're busy. Yeah. One is that <laughs> another is that they're noisy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to realize that if you want engagement to increase learning, mm-hmm. to be beneficial for learning, we're talking about cognitive engagement. Mm. Yeah? That you're cognitively busy. You can be very quietly, silently, be very cognitively engaged in what you're doing. And you can be very noisily, physically engaged and not learn anything. I mean, a typical example of that is uh, kids working three weeks on volcanoes and um, end up making a paper mache volcano and put a a a cola a Coca Cola bottle into it and fill it up with some Coca Cola throw in some Mentos mints mm-hmm. and it starts bubbling and coming out and it's beautiful and it looks great and everything yeah. like that and you ask them um, explain to me how the plate tectonics play a role in volcanism and they look at you as if they're seeing water that's on fire yeah. you know um uh uh, uh uh how does the magma actually come out through the shoots hmm. huh? what they were great busy for two or three weeks making yeah. this beautiful science project but didn't learn diddly yeah about volcanoes uh kids who make videos on martin luther king three weeks at the end they're really good at video editing mm-hmm. but you probably could have learned more about martin luther king in 15 or 30 minutes lecture followed by a 15 minute video of the man, then spending three weeks making that video about it. They were physically engaged with each other. They were talking, discussing, all of these types of things, but they weren't learning. So the Mm -hmm. first thing, it's about cognitive engagement. That's that's the most important. Second is that the teacher should know that there are specific ways to get students to be cognitively engaged. Um, uh, Logan Fiorella and Rich Mayer, um wrote an article well a book in 2016 and an article in 2020 uh, about um what they called generative learning it's based upon the ideas of uh, of of, of from Mm the 70s of the previous century and they speak about eight different um generative activities and these generative activities are based upon things you have to select you have to organize it, you have to integrate new information, mm. and you have to create something new yep. from the information. Yeah, uh, For example, could be as simple as writing a summary, yep. is but in your own words. So not with a computer, you can't cut and paste or copy and paste. Um, the book is closed, so you can't um, literally transcribe what was in the text. But you have to then uh, uh, paraphrase summarize uh, to all of these types of things mm-hmm. then you are, are 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 intellectually or cognitively engaged in what you're doing yeah in in the learning process now they give eight of eight of those types of things making a concept map um, uh, 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 um, in your mind's eye picturing um, all of these types of things are ways of Getting students to be cognitively engaged. And you have to, as a teacher, know which are the eight and what can I use where, and realize that a number of those things are skills. And you can't just teach it. You can teach it, and then they have to practice it before they're capable of doing it. I mean, I often tell uh, an anecdote uh, about um, I did a piece of research, or actually, a PhD of mine uh, did a piece of research on retrieval practice. And before the 2013 um, uh, study by John Dunlowski, Dunlowski um, we thought that summarizing would be a great way to make use of retrieval practice. They're cognitively engaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. They have to retrieve it from their long-term memory. Um, uh, those types of things. And it didn't work. And I uh-huh. said to my PhD student at that moment, "From, let's take a look at the summaries that they made. And these were kids in their junior and senior years of of an academic high school. Mm -hmm. And the summaries were horrific. (laughs) They had learned once, maybe in a course on Dutch, because I'm in the Netherlands, how to make one. Maybe did it once or twice under tutelage of the teacher. And for the rest, they never made use of it. The history teacher never asked them to do it and checked what they did. The biology teacher never did that. The Mm. art appreciation teacher never did that. Uh, The shop teacher never did that. And as a result, we assumed that students could write a summary, but they couldn't. Now, if you're not Mm -hmm. capable of writing a good summary, then the generative activity of writing a summary will not help you learn. You first have to learn how to write a summary. So a mistake that we often make is we assume that because students have been taught it once and practiced it once that they can do it it's a skill and just because they're 17 years old and in 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 juniors or seniors in high school doesn't mean that they can do those types of things same thing with 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 the concept map Um, making one is really really hard you have to learn how to do it you have to be scaffolded in your process so the whole idea is 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 have them acquire the skills and make use of those skills and Mm -hmm. be cognitively engaged with what they're doing, and the best way to cognitively engage students is have them create new things from the things that you've taught them.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, but in their mind. Yes. And completely. the way to see whether or not they're engaged is see what they've produced, because yep. there are artifacts that you have: summaries, concept maps, questions they would ask themselves, uh, that they would ask others. Those are the things that are let's say, the the remnants, the proof that they're cognitively engaged. Mm. And it doesn't have to be overt physical action at the moment that they're so-called studying. That could be just looking and thinking about what they're reading. Maybe the engagement is when they they, they look up into the air with this kind of blank stare, Mm -hmm. thinking about what they did. But you can't they could also be just giving a blank stare so the question is have them give you the the the, the distillation the 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 the, 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 i don't know the word anymore in english i know it in dutch yeah Um, sorry um uh, uh, the precipitate in -hmm. chemistry you can say have them show you the precipitate of that engagement process. Hmm. Then you know that they're cognitively engaged.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you basically need them to show you what's inside their heads. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: be creative as a teacher. Know yeah. cognitive psychology, pedagogy, the tools that you have in your trade. Yeah. And 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 then ask them to show you what they're thinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love uh Daniel Willingham. <clears throat> Said memory is the residue,
1: residue of, thought. of thought.
0: And I love that because yeah. you we want our students to do things, but no, we should have them like our goal should be to get them thinking with all thinking of it. Thinking is
1: also doing, but yes. you're not looking for something, uh, an overt, uh, um, uh, visible behavior. Mm. Thinking is an activity. Yeah. If they're thinking, they're incredibly engaged with the materials. Yeah. That's the type of engagement I want my students to have, yeah, yeah, and not a busy, noisy classroom where kids left and right of the group can't concentrate.
0: Mm. yep, yeah. so really, then uh, you know the the goal of engagement might be, you know how how do we encourage students to think and then show us yeah. the results of that thinking?
1: Exactly. Yeah. If they can show it to you. You can see how engaged they were. Yeah. And when they then show it to you, you can see, how can I uh, c- close up the gaps, help close up the gaps? What type of scaffolding should I use? Uh, what type of feedback does this student need, seeing what yeah. she or he has done? Um, should that be uh, a reteaching, what I call um, a, a directive? Mm-hmm. Um, or should it be epistemological in terms of how did you come up with that? What were your thoughts? Um, mm. What would have happened if you did it differently and see how they react to that? Mm. Yeah. I, I, I I often speak of actually directive, prescriptive and epistemological feedback. Directive is, no that was wrong. Prescriptive is, oh, you should have done it this and this and this way. That's kind of like reteaching. Okay. And epistemological is giving feedback that has them has them think about what they did yeah. and put that into words for you. Hmm. And that's often the best type of feedback, especially if you want them to be engaged, is to have them not tell them they're wrong or tell them they should have done it in a different way. And this is the other way. But ask them why they did it in that way. Understand, hmm. maybe they were thinking out of the box and they had a great idea behind it, but they carried it out wrong. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an engaged student who does that, even though the answer might be wrong, then you can help them do that right. If you understand why they did it that way and get them to think about, well, would you have come up with a different answer if you had done it that in that way? Oh, okay, let me think about that. Yeah. Yeah, So probably would have been different. It would have been this and this. Oh, okay. Why do these two different? What was the difference between what you first did and what you then did? That's what you want to do. That's being engaged in the learning process.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I, this, you, know, you can. It's not. There's no video, but it's not doing things with your hands. Yeah, it's doing things with your mind.
0: And I like I like that epistemological feedback. I really like that because I find myself doing that as a teacher. Is that a lot of my feedback? I ask questions instead exactly. of telling them. You know, oh, maybe you should do this, or you know, I ask. Well, what if or yeah, yeah. why exactly. did you select and you know things like that?
1: Yeah, that's the best for me. If you can do that, if the learning material uh, allows it the, mm-hmm. or their their age or whatever, that's the best for me type of feedback mm. that you can give them,
0: yeah, yeah. so um you know i'm I'm also interested. you live in the Netherlands, yeah. Um, and you uh, study teachers uh, teaching teachers in in the Netherlands too, and so I'm curious about like what what differences um, or similarities do you see between the United States and the Netherlands or you know other other countries around the world? Are we are we all facing the same kinds of things? Yes, the similarities
1: yeah. are just as negative in that the teacher training colleges don't teach things like how students learn. Okay. and what pedagogies work. They teach them myths and ideologies and philosophies. Yep. Um, uh, you, 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 see the, you see the same types of things. Um, the Netherlands is just, on the one hand, a little bit simpler um, because we don't have 50 provinces and that each province can do whatever it wants yeah. <laughs> uh, in education. And yep. even within the pro uh, the 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 province, each school board can mm-hmm. choose what she or he wants. Yeah, so um, th- that makes it a little bit easier. On the other hand, uh, at the national level, you can't in the Netherlands you can't prescribe a curriculum for teacher yeah. training.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, in the United States, um, each state is allowed to do that. We have. Um, uh, We amended our constitution Mm -hmm. in 1917, and that gave the government absolutely no say in um, exactly what was taught. All they could do is uh, determine the um, end terms, Mm -hmm. but for the rest, whatever curriculum you implement really doesn't matter as long as the end terms uh, are achieved. Mm. So that makes it harder here to make a change. Um, I think Americans and in some states are much more. The states are very ideologically inclined. If you look at California and the new mathematics curriculum, it's um, it's actually a, 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 a train wreck happening at the moment with their realistic mathematics there. So you have a whole generation, you have generations of kids who don't learn math, who can't add up um, uh, two numbers and come up with an answer and can only think in terms of pizza pie and, and, and those types of things. Mm. Um, so there are similarities. There are differences. Um, uh, I think in the long run, it's kind of the same. Uh, they're underpaid. They're overworked. Yeah, um, They're often undereducated. Um, uh, there are shortages. Um, all of those things are are, are fairly, fairly fairly similar mm-hmm. in, in the two countries.
0: Hmm. So yeah. is there, do you know, is there any country that is actually training their teachers to, to learn about how learning happens? I mean,
1: there are, yeah. Um, uh, England, for example, not Great Britain, but England, yeah. has uh, a, a national curriculum in, initial teacher training. With uh, eight core areas that are required mm-hmm. taught and based upon uh, empirical evidence, what I call yeah, evidence-informed, yeah. yeah. they have that there. Um, yeah. So they're going in the right direction. Okay, and you see the scores on international tests that they've from 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 going downhill. They've made a kink and are now going uphill. Whereas the others like the United States, the Netherlands, um, Belgium, they're going in the wrong direction. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, that's one, but you, you can't transfer, as I said, you can't transpose things because the United States has 50 different state requirements. Yeah. So you can't do that. The Netherlands, the government isn't allowed to do that. In England, they are. So it's, mm. you, you can't just transplant what works well in one, then yeah. into, into another country. You can only look at it and say, "What are the good points, and how can I implement it within my own uh, uh, country and with my own within my own context?" Mm. As talked about in the first book, contextualized learning.
0: That's such a good metaphor for the classroom too. That yes, we can read all of these great books and everything, but ultimately, it's your own context in your own classroom. And you know, so the more that you understand about the underlying mechanisms of learning, the better you can make a more informed choice about what to do Definitely. in your own context. Yeah. Yeah, so now I have I have three questions that um, I ask all of our guests. So first, what is a major barrier to learner engagement that you have experienced? Uh,
1: that people think that being physically engaged is uh, engagement mm. and um, I mean, being physically engaged is great. But that doesn't make it a good learning experience. You have to be mentally, cognitively engaged. That's the greatest barrier. Yeah, I have to be able to see it and see them smiling. And then I know they're engaged.
0: Maybe they're enjoying it, but they might not be learning anything.
1: (laughs) Often that's the case.
0: Yes. Yeah. And students are notoriously terrible judges at their own learning.
1: Judgment of learning, um, we call that the the uh, um, Dunning-Kruger effect, that um, uh, ignorant people, I don't mean in the pejorative way, but ignorant people are ignorant of their own ignorance.
0: Exactly, yep. If
1: you don't know anything, it's really hard, or you don't know much, it's very hard to gauge, estimate how much you know.
0: Yep, mm, exactly. And,
1: um, experts are notoriously on the safe side and constantly say, well, I don't know so much. And uh, novices are notoriously on the other side thinking they know a lot more than they know.
0: Mm, yep, which is why yeah. assessment is so important because exactly. then you get a real you know, measure of what they yep. know. Yeah. Yep. So my next question is about the future. What yeah. should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions on learner engagement that is not fully being addressed yet?
1: Um, I think we discussed it already, and that's how you can see the residue of that thought. Mm. Um, what techniques do you have at your disposal um, to see whether or not there was actual positive cognitive engagement? hmm and I think that that's something we have to think about. we should be thinking about. We should have thought about. And if I say we should have thought about it, that means we should be thinking about it in the future.
0: Mm. yeah. And I love I don't know if you know of the Project Zero at Harvard, where it's all about thinking and about thinking routines and thinking strategies. And um, you know, I'm just discovering and exploring all of that because, you know, that's the kind of engagement that I think is, is really important is like actually actively having something going on in the mind of the learner. Yeah,
1: exactly. Project zero. I'll check it out. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So as we wrap up, my final question is, what is the one thing you want people to remember from this conversation about learner engagement?
1: Yeah, I think I'm becoming very redundant. Yeah. (laughs) um, The one thing I want them to take away is The only type of engagement that actually leads to learning is cognitive engagement. Mm. You can talk about effective engagement, liking something, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you're learning. Um, We know from research that motivation, while important for learning, doesn't lead to learning. Mm -hmm. Learning having success, achieving success, experiencing success in your learning leads to motivation to learn more. Exactly,
0: the other way around. The other
1: way around. It's it's, it's not um, uh, reciprocal. It's not causal from motivation to learning. Again, motivation is important. A teacher should do her or his best, their best to um, motivate Mm -hmm. learners. But more important, is allowing the students choosing the proper pedagogy, the right size of the step, all of those types of things to ensure that the learner experiences success. I have my holy trinity, and that's teaching should be effective, efficient, and enjoyable. And enjoyable doesn't mean fun. Yes, it means having a feeling, uh, uh, um, giving the learner a feeling of uh, accomplishment. Mm. That they can do more after the lesson than they could beforehand, that yeah. they've become more efficacious. More, the, 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 that is what you should do effective, efficient, and enjoyable.
0: Ah, I like Not that.
1: All learning is fun. Yeah. But learning. Or easy. How, what? Or easy. Or easy. easy. No. Yeah. Um, uh, desirable difficulties, making yeah. things hard in a good way. Yeah, is a a nice article making things difficult in a in 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 a a good way is a really nice article from uh, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be what that would be the takeaway.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. So I I really appreciate this time with you, um, and I'm really excited to look at your new book on how teaching happens because I I am fascinated about everything that's going on inside the mind. And I'm really excited to see that you've pulled together a lot of research on what's actually happening in a classroom that supports that. Exactly. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'd say I, click and clack, the Tappet brothers would say, uh, now over to the shameless commerce division. Um, (laughs) uh, If you haven't bought How Learning Happens, buy it. And if you have bought it and you haven't bought or looked at how teaching happens, do the same.
0: Yes. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Paul.
1: Okay. Take care. Thanks for, for interviewing me. Thanks for this podcast.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this episode. Learner engagement activated is produced by the Learner Engagement Division of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. This episode was hosted by Ian Fency with sound editing and production by Ian Fency. The music is from Purple Planet. Visit the Learner Engagement Division online at www.learnerengagement.org and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at aect.org.